What is a chief You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 11 of the Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Coco Johnnan and David Howe. David S. Anderson is a Mesoamerican archaeologist with research interests including public archaeology, conceptions of heritage, origins and development of sociopolitical complexity, and academic engagement with pseudoscience and pseudoarchaeology. He runs a very popular Twitter account, at DSA Archaeology, that currently has over 10.7 thousand followers and is a contributor to Forbes Science. Currently, Dr. Anderson is employed as an assistant professor of anthropology at Radford University. Wait, isn't Radford University where Carlton got his undergraduate degree in anthropology? Well, yes, Connor. Dr. Anderson was actually one of Carlton's first anthropology professors, and he even gave Carlton several passing grades. Wow. So our guest today is one of the reasons why the two of us and the anthropological community has to put up with Carlton? I mean, when you put it like that. Well, so before this intro collapses like the post-classic period Maya, let's go ahead and get this episode started. So uh, thank you for uh, joining us, Dr. Anderson. Um, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Carlton. Thanks for having me on. And I apologize in advance for all of the ruin that I have caused. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't read, so you're good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've done fine. I think I've done okay. So uh, for the for this first part, we really just want our audience to get a relationship to what got you started in archaeology. So if you'd mind giving our uh, listeners just a brief introduction as to who you are and what you study. Sure. So yeah, I received my PhD in anthropology from Tulane University. The specialization in the Maya, particularly, I've had a long fascination with the pre-classic Maya and sort of, yeah, how that sociopolitical organization question, how do they go from being sort of simple village farmers into the large-scale kingdoms that we see developing in the Maya world? So, yeah, so I have some pretty straight-up traditional archaeological background. You know, how I got into this is a is a long tumbling uh, endeavor in so many ways. I, you know, I always liked history. I always liked being outside, and so in some sense, you know, archaeology was a good fit for me. But uh, uh, Carlton's probably heard me talk before. I mean, what really got my gears go rolling and what makes it so great where I, where I really like being where I am today talking about things like pseudo archaeology as well is that when you know I was 18 and I was heading off to college at the University of Illinois I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and I picked up a book in my local bookshop uh, called Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock which is this you know conspiracy laden tome that's all about how archaeologists professional archaeologists are sort of too narrow minded to recognize uh, all of these truths and mysteries right in front of their eyes. And, you know, at 18, I thought it was an amazing book and it really fired me up. And that's literally the reason I signed up for a bunch of archaeology classes the next semester, my uh, second semester in college. Uh, and gra- rather quickly, I started to see that there were some problems with the claims that he was laying out in that book. But I try to keep in mind, yeah, you know, it's it's how powerful these pseudoscience and pseudoarchaeological narratives can be and how they can really draw people in and uh, get them interested in this subject. So Graham Hancock's definitely uh, a popular name these days in uh, pseudoarchaeology, I would say. So you're, you're pretty avid on social media with like your, I guess, anti-pseudoscience 
uh, how would we say it? Like campaign I don't say it. rhetoric, but yeah, campaign. I, think, <laughs> <Conquest. away>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to throw and, in crusade, but that might be too much. <laughs> crusade. Yeah, a little, a little <laughs> The, interestingly, I, I had heard your name through Carlton, which we'll get to that in a second. But one of my friends who's like pretty big on Twitter had like sent me a tweet or I, I don't use Twitter. Sorry. He, he forwarded me a tweet or whatever, whatever the kids say, um, a tweet from you saying something about how about, you know, like the History Channel actually focuses on actual archaeology and not the pseudoscience. Stuff. And I was like, oh, hey, I know that guy, I think, through somebody. And then I texted Carlton. He was like, yeah, that was my professor at uh, undergrad. And I was like, oh, cool, cool. Didn't know that. Um, uh, actually, one of, one, of my, one of my favorite things, I get attacked every once in a while on Twitter because, you know, I, I, I just picked a Twitter handle and I picked my initials, DSA, and then put archaeology after them because there's a lot of David Andersons in this world. Uh, and mm-hmm. it turns out that, of course, DSA is also widely used for the Democratic Socialist uh, Association, <laughs> something to that extent. So I, I get a lot of attacks for how dare I bring you know, socialism and archaeology and like, dude, that's just my name. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's definitely unfortunate. (laughs) Um, So I I guess the the next question I was supposed to segue into is uh, how has Radford changed since Carlton left? Uh, Well, we got a whole brand new building, uh, so that's good. I I am no longer an adjunct, so that's very good as well. Uh, but we definitely miss Carrollton uh, and all of that. Uh, so it's um, the the program has been growing. We've been uh, we've got a record crop of new majors this semester, and so we're trying to keep it alive. And you know, it's not quite as much fun, but we're still uh, trying to do some good education stuff. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like things got like much, much better. Once <laughs> well, can I can I I'm tell just, tales just, on Carrollton at all while we're here or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Uh, You know, I I totally, you know, he was in my principles of archaeology class, though. I'm pretty sure that was his first class with me. Uh, And, you know, it was like the entire semester. And, you know, some students talk to you and get engaged and and ask questions and whatnot. And, you know, three quarters, almost through the entire semester, I don't I didn't really think he cared at all, you know, about archaeology. He was he was doing fine. It's not, you know, but uh, then like all of a sudden in like the last couple of weeks of the semester, pretty much like this time of year as the semester's wrapping up, uh, all of a sudden he's like, yeah, this is, you know, he like all of a sudden jumped on board. He's like, yeah, am I, you know, is it it your cousin who's uh, at the National Museum of the American Indian or is it? Yeah, that's that's my first cousin. Uh, Kevin Gover is the director of the American Indian Museum in D.C. Yeah, he's, and he's all of a sudden he's like, yeah, he's super interested in this and wants to get involved in all of this and has ties and long histories in this. And I was like, oh, I just thought you were a dude in my class. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, don't forget, I've I've definitely for some of your classes, I think the archaeology of chiefdoms. I had a significant impact uh, towards that class. That that is true. For all the listeners out there, if you have not watched the startlingly amazing music video of what is a chiefdom, (laughs) that is uh, Carlton surprised me at the uh, the last day of the semester or the uh, with a a music video homage to the entire class, uh, which was pretty amazing. I think you worked pretty much every concept we tried to talk about that semester into a two and a half minute music video, something like that. Yeah, it was the entire song of uh, what does the Fox say uh, parodied that. And for no extra credit or like not an assignment, I just did it and uh, presented it. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I have to say, I was like at at this year's field school at Lynch after the podcast aired and the students were listening to it and they're like, do you do anything else? 
And I was next to uh, Dr. Casey Carlson from Augustana, and she was helping the students excavate. And I was like, yeah, well, in undergrad, I did these music videos. And I think one of the most popular is what is a chiefdom and doctor and Dr. Carlson started busting out laughing. She's like, that was you. And I was like, what do you mean? She's, she taught this chiefdom course and she Googled like, what is a chiefdom? And it came up and she's like, wow, this accurately describes it. And she tells her students, now you guys are going to watch this music video. And it's, you know, about four minutes of your life that you won't get back. <laughs> but you know, it, it kind of covers everything. So like it's, it has, I think it's over like 2000 views, like, which isn't a, oh, a wow. lot, but, but for the well, fact for, that like, yeah. Yeah, uh, I guess for the listeners who haven't heard that, we can pop that a clip in right here. State is big, bands are small, tribes are weak and states are strong. Bands go hunt, some tribes farm, and the state will take your food. We show up with currency sometimes slavery but there's one form that no one knows what is a chiefdom all right so yeah sorry for your ears that you had to hear that but um carlton worked really hard on it it's actually fantastic um and as he said it's he didn't warm do and dear first. to my heart <laughs> good is that how you start your classes out, the chiefdom class? I, I have not forced other students to watch it, I don't think ever, but uh, I perhaps should. Final day kind of thing. <laughs> and then you actually even featured in one of them. I think it was Ancient Aliens Idiots. We got you to do a bit about... Um, yeah, there, that too. That happened. That, that did happen. And I think that also proved that even auto-tune can't uh, give me a singing voice. <laughs> Those are interesting videos for sure. I, I guess to to segue away from that, so we can uh, get back onto the uh, the interview here. The um, we just talked about the first time you kind of met Carlton, and he was your student. But uh, a lot of questions we like to ask on the podcast, or at least I do. What is your earliest memory of like archaeology and anthropology, and like as a kid, were you really into it? You know, it, it's not particularly. It was something that by high school I started to get into, but it really fits as well with some of the things I'm doing now. If you want my first memory of someone talking about archaeology, and particularly my first memory of someone talking about stratigraphy, I have to go sure. way back to, I think I was like nine or 10. I had the BBC. Uh, radio recordings that they had done for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, which some people may know as this fabulous uh, classic science fiction comedy novel by Douglas Adams, uh, but it was actually a radio show before it was even a um, before it was a novel. Mm-hmm. And in one of the uh, late final episodes, they actually had a, a group of archaeologists on an alien planet trying to basically use uh, study the stratigraphy to figure out why the robots had taken over the alien planet. And I promise it sort of makes sense if you watch the whole ep- or listen to the whole episode. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like that goes way back. Science fiction uh, is kind of on brand for me. I think that my first memory of archaeology is a science fiction radio show. Well, that's really interesting. We have, uh, I think, one of our pre- previous episodes, Damian Kirkwood. He kind of sees a lot of the, in Star Trek, you kind of see a lot of that as well. Um, oh, goodness, Yes archaeology kind of sprinklings for sure yeah star trek is absolutely littered from the original series i mean lots of people think pick up next generation because uh, captain picard's sort of like hobby was to be an archaeologist as well but even if you go back to the original series there's a lot of archaeology 
uh, sprinkled all throughout that show. Yeah, I really, I really like that because I, one of my really good professors um, who I studied underneath and got me into archaeology. Um, he's, he, I think he, he was a Trekkie, you know, deep down inside. Um, but it's interesting. He called his, uh, he made a little case for all his field gear, and that's something that you do in archaeology anthropology. Is you make these witty little boxes or whatever tools that help you with the trade. And he calls it his, uh, was it tricorder case is what he called it. Which that is seems that, good. That, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's kind of helped him get into anthropology and archaeology too. So it's, it's interesting how they set, they uh, overlap for sure. Yeah. It's almost like it humanizes people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Outer space and things like that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you weren't on Vulcan or, um, one of those, you know, out there planets on the final frontier, but where was your first uh, field experience? Uh, my first field experience was actually in the Northern Great Basin in Oregon. Uh, it was a field school with the University of Oregon, and we were digging uh, some uh, some late archaic uh, sites out there. And so it was it was one of those field schools where you you don't find a lot necessarily. Uh, and so we were digging lots and lots of holes in a dry, dusty desert, and we occasionally would come across a, a projectile point here and there. Uh, it was, uh, but you know, to me, it was just a it was a great experience. Although I, I didn't realize that you know digging through clay would be bad because we had no clay out there. Uh, but uh, it was a yeah, it was a great time. Digging through clay is something that I wouldn't wish upon, like. A prisoner. Sometimes it is just, it can be rough. <laughs> oh, and, and screening it on top of that is a whole nother oh, like, uh, kit and caboodle. Yeah. Without a water screen and anything like that. Yeah. Um, how does the, um, that, you know, out, out there in Oregon compare to field work in Central America, Mexico area, Guatemala? You know, it's, um, it was a total difference. You know, the next year after that, I went to Yucatan, Mexico for my first time and worked for the summer at a Maya archaeological site. And it was just remarkable because I mean, in Oregon, there, were, there was hardly anything on the surface. There were you know, very few surface remains. And most of what we were finding, we had to dig down about a meter to even get to. And you know, I went down to Yucatan and all of a sudden there's just stuff everywhere, like buildings yeah. on the surface right in front of my eyes and pottery and stone all over the surface. And so it was very from the very get-go just a totally jarring experience uh but it, digging too is sort of fun learning to dig in, in oregon in the desert was not what i you know we were mostly digging through sand and so we were digging in like five and ten centimeter levels that were perfectly flat and squared and all of this and then i started digging in yucatan where we dig through big chunky limestone rocks and uh you pull out one rock and you're like well i just get went down 50 centimeters i guess <laughs> and you had sort of such a, a trouble controlling those excavations sometimes that uh, in comparison to what it's like to dig elsewhere so uh, it's uh, it can yeah that it really stresses that that role of how different geology will make our our job sometimes so you kind of went from like two extremes you know oh yeah i went from uh, literally my first archaeological experience was with an archaic hunter-gatherer excavations and then the next one uh, was with yeah upper level like you know elite bureaucratic state sort of stuff (laughs) (laughs) like oh this is what some other people do (laughs) it's a little more exciting so a lot of our guests in previous episodes they've talked about some of their inspirations for archaeology and what they want to get into and and the two main ones are Egyptology and then working in Mesoamerica. And you are one of the few that works in Meso and your wife is an Egyptologist. Yes. Um, so, Whoa, yeah, power couple. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, so you did your MA in anthropology at Tulane. And uh-huh. now, did you have to write a thesis for your MA? No, uh, it was because uh, I was in a PhD program and I sort of picked up the MA along the way. I did uh, write a senior thesis as an undergrad on the Maya, uh, in particular on the uh, iconography of a Maya city known as Yaxchilan, uh, which is in Chiapas, Mexico, right on the border with Guatemala. And it's it, Yaxchilan might be known to some folks because it has just stunning lintels. Uh, has this really amazing collection of lintels that are carved lintels showing the, the rulers of the site carrying out bloodletting rites and other uh, ritual events. And uh, so yeah, I spent sort of my senior year in undergrad just pouring over all the Yashchilan data I could get my hands on uh, to try and make sense of that because it's, it's just it's amazing how you know there's how dense the iconographic record for the Maya can be sometimes. Damn. I mean, the fact that you get to work in Mesoamerica is actually extraordinarily cool. And something that I remember a lot um, from from the univer- from Radford was your survey of archaeological sites in Stobo. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. So my dissert- my PhD dissertation was on Stobo, and as a grad student, I worked uh, on a project that was surveying Northwest Yucatan, and Stobo is one of the sites we found during that survey. So, so Stobo is just one of the sites. It's not the region itself. Yeah, yeah. Stobo was is the one of the largest uh, sites that we encountered during that survey, and at least, and particularly from the perspective, uh, it was a pre-classic site, and it was the largest pre-classic site we found uh, that was single occupation. There's one or two contenders that that also uh, had. Uh, some pre-classic occupation at them, but also have, were later reoccupied during the classic period. And so it becomes quite a difficult endeavor to start asking that question of how big they were during the pre-classic. But Stobo made for a fabulous dissertation project for me because since it was never reoccupied, I didn't have to worry about uh, teasing out all those chronological details. Which can be super difficult <laughs> in any site, you know, oh, yes. huge... Why don't we go ahead and uh, wrap up segment one with uh, Dr. David Anderson from Radford University, and we will be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to episode 11 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are interviewing Dr. David Anderson of Radford University. Um, this is the second section of this. Um, and to begin with, we we ended the last segment talking about your, some of your field work in uh, Mexico um, and I was just wondering, as a as a plains archaeologist, I always wondered how you actually do like survey in these jungled areas and find stuff. Uh, good Lord. Yeah. I and mean, that's been the, the joke of a lot of my life. I mean, I think we, we mentioned my wife works in Egypt and I've done some work with her there too. And it's like, you just see everything everywhere you go. And yeah, in the jungle, it's an entirely different endeavor. So like for... Uh, I, as a grad student, I worked on a, a regional survey project where we were looking for unrecorded sites. And uh, what we ended up doing in that project, because it just the, the density of the forest in northern Yucatan is so great that you know, there's no chance you can walk transects or anything like this. You would be there forever. And so we ended up doing an informant-based survey for that project. And so we would, you know, pull into town and start talking to local individuals wherever where we went, uh, meet with the, the appropriate political officials, and then we would sit down, and, you know, have a drink and talk with people uh, who were farmers and hunters and people who spent a lot of time in the woods. And we would try, and we would, you know, gradually over the that we this is a three year long project. Um, we would cultivate different informants uh, who were familiar with or aware of different archaeological sites in the woods, and then they would take us out there. And it was always an interesting experience because 
you know, here we are foreigners tumbling into, you know, very small communities in rural Mexico, you know, asking to be taken to piles of rocks in the woods. Uh, and everybody was very confused. And uh, <laughs> they, they, you know, sometimes people would say like, well, you know, there's, there's nothing big here. And we're like, yeah, we don't, we don't need to see the big stuff. We want to see little villages. We want to talk about, you know, everyday life. And so we had to, to really have long conversations with people a lot of times to explain why we were there and what we were interested in. And so ultimately is, you know, we found a ton of sites on that survey. It was a really interesting project to work on because we had uh, the directors of the project had set us up to start surveying Northwest Yucatan, uh, and their plan was to work across the entirety of the northern coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. We were gonna, you know, just move, you know, down the, down the road every uh, season and get a, another stretch of coast in. And basically, we never left the northwest corner of the peninsula over the three years because uh, oh, we wow. found so. So many sites. We went before the survey. Uh, there were about. Uh, I have to double check my numbers for sure, but there were about forty or so sites that were known in the region prior to our survey. And uh, the directors thought we'd find like 20, 30 more and move on. And we ended up finding 300 some odd sites more. And so we just like never got out of this space because we just kept talking to these guys and saying, what do you know? And they're like, hey, I've got another site for you. And they'd take us out. And sure enough, we just kept finding site after site after site. And so it's, um, you know, we had a lot of talks talks about it back in the day. And this is not a systematic survey in any uh, scientific or sampling sense. And so Lord knows how much more is out there there because there's just so much space we couldn't we could not feasibly get to if there were not trails or dirt roads uh, it would just take us so long to actually get to them in fact there was one site um, that uh, we always wanted to go to because the director one of the directors of the project tony andrews uh, went to a site back in the 70s uh, along the coast and uh, he had um, been taken there, but there, Tony had these fabulous field stories that you just would not believe. And back in the 70s, they were friends with a helicopter pilot. <laughs> and, and so the helicopter <laughs> pilot would take them places when they had a little money for, for fuel for his helicopter. And they were just you know, cruising along the, the coast of northwest Yucatan and saw a site out in the, the, uh, the, the wetlands near the coast and popped down and uh, Tony scooped up some pottery and that was all they were running out of gas and there was a storm coming in so he jumped back up into the helicopter and they zoomed off and so Tony was sort of obsessed with getting back to this site and we, we spent two years uh, talking with uh, some folks out along that lived along the coast trying to get them to take us to this site and um, they knew it uh, there were some guys who were duck hunters and would take uh, they were guide duck hunter guides too so they would take people out along the wetlands all the time uh, but it was just so remote and so so wet that they never would take us. They, you know, they kept saying, "Well, come back next, you know, next month it might be drier, or come back next month it might be wetter, and we can take a boat." And there was just never in a place where we could actually get out to this site. Um, the best part, though, is you can almost see it on Google Earth because um, there is a crashed airplane near it. And um, oh, wow. the, uh, <laughs> the, the airplane it, it is absolutely beautiful. It's this crashed, you know, little, you know, I don't know my I don't airplane. I'm going to say Cessna. It's probably not a Cessna, but some little plane crashed in this wetland. And uh, the duck hunter guides uh, had a, a photo of the airplane uh, and it had this the crappiest stencil of U.S. Air Force uh, on the side of this plane. <laughs> That, you know, one look at, you're like, that is not a U.S. Air Force plane. Uh, and so we're, we were US pretty Air convinced Force that that like was uh, yeah, some sort of smuggling operation uh, airplane crash out in the, in the wetlands there. Oh, wow. 
That's really interesting. And it seems like these communities that you go into kind of are, I wouldn't say the backbone, but they're, they become this, um, this huge body of knowledge that you can talk and, and, and use to learn about this, these areas. Absolutely. I mean, this was a fundamental critical resource to how we were doing this work. We were you know, reliant upon local knowledge of these sites and, and an ongoing conversation because, as I said, you know, they were kind of confused why we wanted to see these piles of rocks in the woods. The, they did not have a strong sense of, of personal or cultural connection to these sites. Uh, they were familiar with them and had some awareness that people had lived there, but they didn't see them as direct ancestry uh, sites or places. Uh, and so there was, a, there were a lot of strange conversations days where, you know, they, you know, we had, we had several informants who just really wanted to take us to big mounds. And, you know, every time we would drive down a road and, you know, whenever we drove down any road or walked down any path, we would just have our eyes peeled for any sign of a site. Uh, because Yucatan is, it's flat as a pancake. It's uh, geologically speaking, it's very similar to Florida. And so, um, Anytime you see any kind of bump on the horizon, you know you've got a, a structure or a platform of some kind. And so we, we would stop over and over again and you know tell people, uh, like, hey, hey we want to see these. These are houses. This is where people used to live. And I, I really remember one guide one day, because this guy we'd been working with for about a week, and he'd been taking us to these really big sites that he knew. Uh, and we, you know, we stopped in the side of the road and said, hey, we're really interested in this. There's you know, a couple of house mounds here. This, we want to see stuff like this, too. And, and he laughed. He's like, that stuff's everywhere. <laughs> and, and sure oh enough, God. he spent like another two, three months taking us to little house sites you know, every day for like two, three months in a row because there was just so many of these things all over the place in Yucatan. It was it was a remarkable site. You know, some of uh, the listeners might be familiar with, there's a lot of LIDAR surveys coming out right now about that are showing just how dense uh, the occupation of the Maya world was. And mm -hmm. this is something that we've, we've had glimpses of, we've known that the density of human occupation in this tropical rainforest is just through the roof. Uh, but the LIDAR is exposing it in a way that was nearly impossible to do beforehand because we were you know, chasing down these dirt trails and dirt roads and we could just barely come up with these things. Uh, now that we're, we're having these technological advancements, we're really going to be able to start seeing just how dense the settlement was. Um, I have a, a quick question. I'm really interested in the idea that you want to look at like, you know, the everyday and the ordinary in like a big civilization like that, just like a house. What does, I guess really quickly, what does a, I guess, Neolithic, like Mesoamerican, like house held kind of look like at that time? Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the pre-classic, which is this sort of early farming communities. Uh, so, you know, quasi-Neolithic in that sense. And um, a lot of these small sites, the small pre-classic sites that we would find, we would find the remnants of, you know, probably four to five small house platforms, uh, and so, you know, the community, you know, that's, that's what we could see from a stone platform perspective. And, sure. um, the, it's really hard to, to grow much past that and say, you know, how many people were here is tough to say. If we look at, you know, modern Maya communities, it's really common for there to be sort of a central large house in a family group and for lots of, you know, smaller outbuildings, uh, and to make up sort of a, a, a whole house compound of sorts and you would you see a lot of household gardens that go side by side with that so we have a, a presumption that the standard maya house and you know that you'll have one large house lots of small outbuildings
buildings and a large area that is dedicated to orchard uh, orchard uh, for growing fruit trees and other household uh, plants for a, for a household garden. Um, but it's hard to know in the pre-classic, you know, that those are things that do not survive well in the archaeological record. So the, the distribution right. of the, the stone platforms that we found certainly seems to plausibly fit into that household model. But uh, it's pretty hard to say at this point. That's just really interesting. I, I just like knowing about how like everyday people lived. That's cool. One of the really fascinating, one of my favorite things that we found on this project is that uh, we ended up encountering 25 sites out of all of these uh, that had ball courts at them. The, the Maya used to play a ball game with a, a rubber ball and it's sort of a hip ball. You had to bounce it back and forth off your hip to one another. And yeah. the, the literature before our project you – know, and still to this day, a lot of the Maya ball game literature really heavily emphasizes a notion that this is an elite practice, that this is a ritual practice, that there's all kinds of deep, profound significance to this game. And I don't think that's wrong. But what we found on these surveys, these we found these 25 ball courts, and virtually all of them were at really small sites like this. So we would find you know, a site with seven, eight, nine houses and a ball court. And there, you know, we were we were finding ball courts at sites where there was nothing in any way, shape, or form that looked like elite architecture or uh, sort of you know higher echelons of socio-political complexity. And it really got the wheels turning for me in talking about. And so I, I've published some articles about this about this notion that maybe you know yes, later on during the classic period there is an elite political ritual theater version of this game, uh, but it actually looks like we have some good evidence that there is just community building small scale game playing going on too huh like Brooklyn. I do have to I had one off of that topic alone, one of the first professional talks I ever wa- watched or listened to set in on was yours at SAAs in San Francisco where you talked about that subject. And personally, I have taken that research. I actually talked about it last week to one of my classes because we're talking about um, complex civilization in Mesoamerica. And one of the concepts that I tell my students in the ter- concept of entertainment is I use that research that you that you brought up about ball courts being at village sites. And I make the analogy to my students. I'm like, is the NFL the only place where American football is played? And they, they look at me like I'm an idiot. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this isn't a hard question. Like, who else plays football? Then everyone's like, oh, college, high school. And I'm like, exactly. So even in the past, there's these modern day analogies that we can make between some of these ancient civilizations and modern day civilizations. Um, and I use that that ball court analogy. It's like, I had a professor and this is what he found, that they're found at small sites. So like, are these elites playing it? Probably not. It's probably, you know, everyday people enjoying, just enjoying, you know, a sport. Absolutely. That's fantastic because it, it highlights too, you know, brings up to mind for me, you know, we have uh, Thanksgiving coming up here in the U.S. Uh, and there's, you know, this strong tradition of families playing sort of a, a light touch football game in the backyard after dinner. And that that game is a social bonding ritual, but it also involves no court whatsoever. And so, you know, that that signal, and this is what we've sort of been aware of with the, the Maya ball game for a long time, we 
can find it when we can find stone courts where it was played. But they didn't need those stone courts to play this game. And so there's sort of no telling how common this game was in that sort of backyard and formal schoolyard kind of way. It, it could have been just about everywhere. And it's going to be very hard for us to be able to pick that up from an archaeological signature. Exactly. And another thing that I've taken from your class is uh, one of the first times that you show us Chichen Itza, you're like, does anyone know what this is? And everyone's like, no. And you're like, this is the rebel base from Star Wars. And, <laughs> Wait, no, no, no. Uh, Tikal, I, Tikal, not Chichen. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. PhD no. student, come on. Yeah, PhD student. But you, but interestingly enough, although it's not, it's even though it's not Chichen, you have worked as a at Chichen Itza, which is one of the more like prominent sites in Mexico. Yeah, I got a, a chance to work there for a couple of weeks. Some some good friends and colleagues of mine were running a project there, and so I got to play our archaeological tourist and join them for a couple of weeks oh, that's that's amazing that's one of the the things that inspired me to get into archaeology is just the the beauty and the the monumentalness of of that place yeah and chichen it, chichen itza is an absolutely phenomenal place to see i mean it was one of the largest uh maya cities in the northern lowlands you know it would have been it's i think it's almost 20 square kilometers at this point and would have been a huge uh urban sprawl basically and at the heart of it you have uh, one of the most iconic maya pyramids the, uh, the pyramid of kukulkan or the castillo as the spanish called it where you have this beautiful uh, nine layered step pyramid with four staircases going on all sides and has become quite a draw for tourists uh, around the equinox too because there's a fantastic hierophany or shadow and light effect uh, whereas the the sun sets on the, the equinox, you see sort of this serpent of light descending the stairways of the pyramid at Chichen. Oh yeah. It's, I, I really wish I could go there during that time, but it's, it's usually a tourist draw, like you were saying, but I, yeah, I remember it being just so expansive. Like I, ne- I had never seen anything that large. And I was like, I think it was like 10 or 10 or 11. And I was like exhausted <laughs> at the end of there, the there. And there's just, you know, it keeps going on and on. I, I, um, I will admit, uh, I, I guess I'm doing this on the record, but uh, uh, while I was there, I was able to sort of see some places that aren't normally open to tourists. And there was a particular, there's a, a group, um, I believe the group's called the, uh, oh, the, the Temple of the Long Count. Or there's a there's a building, uh, the, no, excuse me, it's the group of the initial series. That's what it is. Uh, there's um, very, there are very few monuments with uh, Maya uh, Long Count calendar dates. Uh, so the Maya Long Count calendar is the famous calendar that, uh, you know, that uh, some people decided was going to end the world back in 2012. Uh, but there, there aren't a lot of those dates uh, in Chichen or any of the Northern Lowland sites, but there's one at this group of the initial series. Uh, and that group had interestingly been heavily excavated and restored, uh, but for financial reasons uh, was never open to tourists. And so I was able to sneak back there and check it out. It's, uh, uh, and it's, it's phenomenal. There's a, a uh, this beautiful, just circular uh, platform that was built as a turtle. So it's this nice circle, a circular platform with a turtle head on one side and a tail on the other and little legs sticking out. Uh, it's just that site just goes on and on. And, you know, a, a lot of Maya sites, I feel like there's a little bit more uniformity, uh, whereas you move from one part of the site to the other, they're building things with, with more similarity to it. But Chichen uh, is just one of these places where it seems like every group of the uh, at the site is built with a different flair and a different style. So it, it is the site that just keeps on giving if you're a tourist and want to go see. It's just there's an amazing amount of stuff there. Are there any duck effigies present? Any duck effigies? Yeah, like quack. 
I, I think I have missed an inside joke of some kind. I don't think we have any good ducks uh, uh, at all in my art, actually. <laughs> oh, well, that's that's about. We had a we had a conversation about that. I guess we had a spat more. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, more of a spat about south or what is it, southwest or southeast duck effigies? South, southwest. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Yep, that happened. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I, I think we're going to duck out of this episode, <laughs> this section real quick, um, and we'll catch you on the far side. All right, so we're back with section three of episode 11 of a Life in Ruins podcast here with our guest, Dr. David Anderson. Um, now, before we begin, I do want to give you a shout out, Dr. Anderson, because a small conversation that you and I had during your chiefdom course has actually like launched my research interests. And I, you, you probably don't remember it, but I, I I bring it up at all my talks as an introduction. Oh my! And when okay. we, and when we were when we were talking, you showed us a map of the distribution of different chiefdoms, chiefdom cultures, and mm-hmm. one of them is the uh, Cadoan chiefdom, mm-hmm. um, which is the only Mississippian chiefdom culture west of the Mississippi. And after class, I came up to you and, and I asked about it, and you didn't have much familiarity, and I made a mention to you is like, well, I've always heard that the Pawnee are related to the Aztecs or descendants of the Aztecs because of this ritual sacrifice. And you very carefully told me, no, that's not the case based on linguistics and the time frame. And that question alone kind of got me thinking about what I want to do. I was like, well, because I had figured that at that young point in my career, I think I was probably a, a junior mm, in undergrad yeah. when I took that course. I'm like, well, where did the Pawnee come from? Because I just assumed that the archaeological record, someone had known that there had to be someone who know where the Pawnee had come from. And just like on limited research that I've done, I realized two things. One, the Great Plains isn't well investigated, has for the largest geographic region, has the least amount of archaeologists. And then two, no one has really actually been investigated where like tribal nations have come from um, past like the cultural historical approach. And like that was when I when I applied to my master's at Wyoming, that was the question I wanted to answer. I was like, I want to know where the Pawnee came from. So I have to give you props because like that one conversation propelled me to basically, you know, spending a considerable amount of time and energy and money into <laughs> figuring out that question and has kind of become like the basis of my career because that was what my master's thesis was on. And that's like what my dissertation is still continuing on is like answering this one question that resulted from just a, a brief conversation that I had with a professor of mine in undergrad. Well, that's fabulous. I'm, I'm, it's amazing to hear that, really. And uh, it's been great to see you go on and do such good work. Uh, and it's it's a fantastic question, right? I mean, it's the, the move, as you know, that studying the movement and development of people through archaeological material alone is pretty difficult. And so it's it's really great to see you know people taking this seriously and, and you know, you moving on with this subject and this question. Yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely just wanted to give you that shout out. And I like bring it up all the time. Every time I start a presentation, I'm like, so this is the background to why this started. But um, for the purpose of this podcast, where we like to introduce and talk to young professionals in the field of archaeology and anthropology, you have between the years of like 2012 to the present has been rather interesting in terms of your professional career and that you've been teaching at like the three major 
academic institutions in Southwest Virginia, Radford University, Virginia Tech, and Roanoke College. Uh-huh. So would you like to like describe to our listeners like that whole process of becoming an assistant? You're now an assistant professor. Like you're good. I am now an assistant professor. Yes. As of, you know, six months ago or so. So there was like a, like a seven, six month year period where that was not guaranteed. So would you like to try to describe that process to our listeners? Sure. I know we, we've talked about this before outside of the podcast and whatnot. I mean, the, the career track in archaeology, uh, there can be very difficult. And especially if you are interested in the academic side uh, of archaeology, you know, I graduated from Tulane University, which is a pretty darn good institution in 2010 with my PhD. And I had a couple of, let's see, I had one, no, I had two publications to my name and one of them in a top tier uh, peer reviewed journal at that point. And I had a ton of conference presentations and I had teaching experience as a, a grad student. I had taught several classes. And so I graduated from Tulane knowing that the job market was tough but thinking that, you know, I've got a pretty decent resume. I've, you know, I've got, you know, uh, directed my own project in Mexico. I have lots of field experience. I had publications. I had all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, I met the job market and it was just terrifying. You know, ultimately I was, you know, on an, uh, nominally on the job market from, you know, 2010 uh, all the way through to this last year trying to look for a full-time teaching position somewhere. I, as much as I love field work, uh, the classroom is something that I love equally. And so there are other options out there in archaeology uh, for employment, particularly uh, in the cultural resource management world. But I was very passionately interested in being involved in education. And yeah, you know, it's uh, just to be blunt, you know, the, um, the during the time period that I was on the job market, there would be in a good year, there would be about 20 or so jobs I could apply to nationwide. And usually most of those were were a stretch where I'd be like, oh yeah, I totally do environmental archaeology. I, you know, hey, I've got one paper on soil analysis. I'm, yeah, I'm an environmental archaeologist. I'll apply to that job. You know, and it was, it was rough. Uh, It was really, really, um, they're just, there are not a lot of academic jobs right now, basically. I mean, quite literally, you know, I graduated you know, with my PhD studying the Maya, and since I graduated in 2010, there has been, I believe, just one, maybe two tenure-track jobs for uh, specifically looking for a Maya specialist since I graduated. So I, I very quickly realized by you know, 2010, 2011, that I needed to diversify my uh, credentials if I wanted to be some, you know, to be able to stand out in some way, shape, or form uh, on this job market, because there were lots of other Maya archaeologists out there. There's a, there's quite a few of us, in fact, and we're all doing relative, we're all doing good work and doing some very interesting things, but with no Maya archaeology jobs, I, I, that's um, really is a big part of what pushed me to start doing you know, formal research on pseudo-archaeology and pseudo-archaeological claims so that I could define myself in some way, shape, or form as uh, on that academic platform as, as more than a one-trick pony, if you will. And I think that's um, for people looking at you know, the academic job market and wanting to move in that direction, I think that is vital that um, 
you you can't just be your your dissertation like your your dissertation was hard and it was a lot of work and i understand that and i acknowledge that and it in a in a better world perhaps your dissertation and the amazing work you did on it would be enough to get you a job but it's you're gonna you know there are two to three hundred people with phds on the job market every year looking for uh these academic archaeology teaching jobs and so i think they're really it's fundamentally vital that people need to find a way to stick out in that whole that whole pile well i know there was a moment my last year at radford you were no longer an adjunct professor Mm -hmm. and we, we had brought you in for a talk the anthropology club did and i remember afterwards we were talking and we're like kind of just chatting with you about your job prospects you had just had a, a baby girl and you were struggling to find an academic job in archaeology and I remember you didn't really like crm i mean because you had a family at that point and crm requires you to be yeah. out and about and you yeah, had, I, would, you I wouldn't say i don't your, like crm but i would say that i wanted to be with my family yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and you'd said you had mentioned that you we're thinking about like dropping out of archaeology to get a, a desk job in order to support your family. And that scared the living hell out of me in terms of like my prospects for the future. Cause we had, you know, a, a professor at Aunt Radford that was, has a lot of publications and did very well and came from Tulane. And the fact that you were struggling was like, what are my prospects? You know, if I, and a, if Wyoming accepts me and to their credit, they, they did or to their unfortunate they did <laughs> and and so like just could you describe like that kind of realization that everything that you kind of worked for at that point like the considerable amount of schooling that you'd had to have either take a break or just drop out altogether yeah it um it was terrifying it, it really was for me where that i had devoted you know 10 years of my life to getting a phd and years before that you know, getting involved in archaeology and um, then years of teaching after that because i managed to stay uh, employed teaching as you mentioned earlier you know not at uh, not just radford but i was teaching adjuncting at radford and adjuncting at roanoke college as well as virginia tech and was sort of doing this academic dance from one job and uh, position to another and trying to keep that resume alive from a teaching perspective and trying to keep it alive from uh, a publication perspective and all that process too. And it's, it was, you know, there were, there were many moments where, you know, I, I actually quit Radford at one point. Actually, I guess you don't, you probably don't know this. I deliberately quit uh, Radford because there came a point where they asked in essence, and it was not, you know, it was not the department that I'm in now. It was not the the wonderful folks that I teach with now and that you remember, but I was asked to teach four classes a semester at Radford as an adjunct between two different departments. And that was a full-time load for full-time professors. And I, uh, you know, and as an adjunct, I would have been getting paid less than half of, of the, the money those professors, other professors were getting paid, and I would have gotten, you know, no benefits whatsoever. And I quit. And it was, that that was the end of my dream. I really did think that this is this career that I wanted, I, I walked away from because I wasn't willing to let an institution sort of take advantage of me in that way. 
And luckily enough, like a couple of weeks later, a job, a full-time job opened up at Roanoke College and I was able to get that job for two years. And then by the time that that job ended, there was Dr. Fox, actually, our, our, one of our, our other archaeologists in our department at Radford, uh, became faculty senate president, uh, which has embroiled him in all kinds of bureaucracy that I'm not sure he enjoys every day. But uh, since he became faculty senate president there, he had some course releases, and that enabled Radford to hire me on a full-time basis. Well, full-time as in I was teaching a full load and getting benefits and whatnot, but it was a one-year contract, and we got the second, we got that contract renewed for a second year. Uh, and then just this fall, I, you know, la- this over this this last summer, I was hired as an assistant professor, tenure track professor at Radford, and it, it's it was remarkable. <laughs> it was I, I, I still don't quite believe that it, that it's actually happening that I have some job stability here, and I'm and I'm one of the lucky ones. I mean, I truly I've been teaching for the last seven years straight. And for four of those seven years, I was employed full-time with benefits uh, and whatnot. And I know lots of my friends and colleagues who have had harder and more difficult roads uh, in trying to find employment in the, the academy. And it's it's just, it's one of those things that um, I, I think it's important to talk about these issues. And I'm glad we're talking about these issues because it sucks. And it's, um, at the same time, I don't regret like going into this profession or trying to get these jobs, this is, this, you know, there was never a moment where I was like, damn, I shouldn't have spent the last 10 years in grad school. Uh, there was always a damn, I, I want to keep doing this somehow. And in this is, you know, part of and parcel of how I started um, up on Twitter and how I ended up writing for a, a couple of different websites because uh, I was afraid and, and pretty you know certain that my academic career was going to end. And so I was looking for a way to build a, a public journalism and archaeology journalism career, in essence, in some way, shape or form that I could still keep talking about these issues to the public. It's um, if you're if you're doing this, you know, the people listening, uh, I, I love this career. I think obviously you guys love this career, but it is important to be honest about how few jobs there are in the professorate right now. Uh, and that's not about to change anytime soon. And so this is a, a very important consideration of you know, their, of how you can use your career and your experience flexibly. Because anyone getting a graduate degree or a PhD, you have phenomenal research skills. You have phenomenal writing skills. And the academy is not the only place where those skills can be put to use. Yeah. I'm just so glad to hear that said in a sentence. That's really, it's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. Cause we, you know, we hear a lot how toxic the job market can be at times and like rushing for it and like to have a, a professor voice those concerns and like what goes on at the university level administratively is just phenomenal. And I remember, I think it was like on Facebook or something like Dr. Fox. I remember when that position opened and I, I, I'm pretty sure it's basically meant for you. I know they opened it up and then they asked students like, who should we hire? <laughs> and like everybody was like, well, you're going to hire Dr. Anderson, right? Like there's no, why would we hire anybody else? Like that's just, that's just crazy. Cause like the Radford department is just, it's small. It's, it's you, Dr. Cassidy Arista, Dr. Jake Fox, Dr. Donna Boyd, and then Dr. Cliff Boyd. And then is Dr. Is it, is it Mari? Is he still around? Uh, Darcy Mori. Uh, yeah, Darcy Mori is a, Maury, a research yeah. associate with the department. Yeah, he's Darn still man. around. Okay. Yeah, I remember hearing one of his talks. Yeah, he and, does some uh, fabulous zoo archaeological work with domestication of dogs, but but he doesn't teach for us. Okay. Gotcha. 
no, like I'm super happy because I, I remember that moment where you told us that and like it straight up broke my heart that you were thinking about leaving the field because it was you're one of the I'm pretty sure actually you taught me how to do archaeology because it was the <laughs> intro to me- it was like methods one and you taught methods two. Yep, and then you had field school class. with me too. Yeah, the chieftain class was interesting because it was like the first, like, I guess it was almost like a grad class because it was like six of us. We talked about articles for an hour and a half and concepts. And that was mm-hmm. like new. And then, yeah, then you taught me how to be a field archaeologist at field school. Oh, so, yeah, you're 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 the reason why everyone has to deal with me. <laughs> I I uh... Yeah, I, I, it's fantastic, Connor. I mean, it's been really a pleasure to see you go on and do so well. Oh, yeah, no, totally appreciate it. And I guess I think what we're going to do here is because the content that we've we talked with you is just is phenomenal. I think for the first time ever, we're going to go ahead and wrap section three up and then go ahead with uh maybe one time only section four, because we want to get into your science communication, because that is also important that we believe our, our inner, our listeners should hear. So why don't we just go ahead? Let's go ahead and like wrap up section three. We'll be right back everybody. Um, hopefully we don't get in too much trouble with our producer, uh, Chris, who has left us alone also for the first time, our Webster dictionary isn't available. So we're just gonna go ahead and wrap this up and we'll be back for section four of a life and ruins podcast. episode Evan. Welcome back to episode 11 of a Life and Ruins podcast. Here we are with, uh, <laughs> oops, yeah, episode 11 of a Life and Ruins podcast. We're here with Dr. David Anderson, uh, assistant professor at Radford University. And this is our special segment four. And so uh, we really wanted to keep Dr. Anderson on for, for, this, for this segment because he's ra- rather prominent in the science communication realm. And uh, a little fun bit, Dr. Anderson, you had a, a student ask you a pretty interesting question the other day, huh? Yeah. In fact, it was just the other day. I had one of the students in my 101 uh, class who sat down in my office and we were talking about this, that, and the other. And he said, oh, by the way, have you heard about this podcast, A Life in Ruins? <laughs> and uh, what praises did you heap upon us? <laughs> um, well, I said, well, you know, we, that's actually, you know, one of the guests is, was one of my students and was actually a Radford alum and everything. So he was, uh, the student was quite impressed, I think. So, you know, you guys are you guys are getting out there and making an impression on everybody, all the interested parties in archaeology. The fact that I was considered impressive is just phenomenal in its own right. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, well. We're, we might be getting big in these small archaeological circles, but it looks like or you have been communicating in the Twitter Twitter sphere, kind of using your Twitter as a, a way to kind of combat these Graham Hancock things. Um, what kind of gave you the original idea to branch into that? I know you had mentioned the Graham Hancock. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I made a decision back uh, in 2000. Um, Goodness, I guess that uh, would be about 2017, 2016 to get on Twitter uh, sort of explicitly as a place to do public outreach. Uh, and um, it, it was a, a platform that appealed to me in sort of the, the quickness and the flexibility of it. I've done some blogging here and there, and I think blogging is great. And I've uh, done some uh, – I've been on quite a few different podcasts at this point, too, and I think podcasting is, is – phenomenal and it's been an incredible way to reach out to people on this discipline but twitter sort of spoke to me as a great place to start and yeah i just started working on like saying you know what i mean i think the biggest thing you know about archaeology is that 
we're, we're being beaten in the public media landscape by pseudoscience practitioners. You know, this is something that uh, astonishes me. There's a, a survey that I use uh, in my classes and talk about with some regularity uh, that was done by Chapman University. And they uh, ask about uh, some paranormal beliefs in this survey. And they ask about things like ancient aliens and uh, Atlantis. And as of 2018, uh, 41% of Americans said that they believe in ancient aliens. Forty-one percent. That that number has uh, doubled in like the last four years too from this particular survey. I mean, for crying out loud, when do we get forty-one percent of Americans agreeing on just about anything nowadays? But to me, this this is like shocking. Like this this means that forty-one percent of Americans think that our profession is either lying to them or that we're all just a total bunch of idiots. Uh, because there's no proof whatsoever for this base, you know, this ancient alien concept. Uh, it's worse with Atlantis. Uh, the, actually, the Atlantis question is bizarre, uh, but the 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 answer, the survey answers uh, from 2018, I believe it's 57 percent of of Americans believe Atlantis. Uh, and here's the problem: their question says Atlantis or something like it uh, exists. And so I think there's some some latitude there where the, the respondents uh, might lump in things like ancient Egypt and say like, well, yeah, that was this big ancient complex civilization. So I think there's some some issues to to be pulled apart there, but. The reality is, I mean, we are losing the public relations battle, and that is something that I wanted to step onto Twitter, and I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've been really uh, – I've enjoyed Twitter. It's a place that I actually uh, find some fun, and I think it's a fabulous and important – you know, social media gets lamblasted all the time nowadays, but it is a place where we can actually have direct conversations uh, between professionals and interested laypeople in a world – and I've been lucky to grow my presence from there. I've written for uh, several websites uh, uh, since then, and I have a, a standing gig with Forbes uh, as a contributor to write for Forbes website now, which has given me a chance to write about archaeology for the public. And I got into a spat with Megan Fox, basically, and that got me a, a, a Washington Post piece. So, uh, you know, it's if, if you get out there and put yourself out there and talk about these things in, in comprehensive ways, you know, we really can reach out and make a difference on these issues. Yeah. Dang. That company I was telling you about earlier is the company that produces her show. Hold on. Of course. When, when you say spat with Megan Fox, like you and Megan Fox well, went out uh, over Twitter. She, she has never responded to me now. <laughs> uh, the, um, <laughs> yeah, I, she, she does have a Twitter feed and I would tag her and uh, try to draw some attention to this issue, but she doesn't really use her Twitter feed. So, uh, you know, but of course, since she's, you know, Megan Fox, she has something like a million followers and we uh, tried to, to raise this issue. And, you know, ultimately the, this is something that, that surrounded that Fox herself was interested in uh, starting a new TV show. And there had been several press releases about this, about this show that ended up being called legends of the lost. And, I was deeply concerned, and this was something that, you know, I think the way archaeology is being presented to the public is of profound importance. And the, there were a lot of telltale signs in how the show was being promoted and, and announced that they were going to be in some, some territory that I would say that they're on thin ice, where they were clearly uh, talking about some conspiracies and some mystery mongering and that there was a pretty heavy overlay of distrust for the Academy and all of this. 
there was some interest in ancient aliens and all of this. Uh, and uh, Megan Fox's personal spiritualism was uh, sort of clearly sort of edging into this in some ways too. And, you know, it was that spiritualism aspect that really drew me to say, like, I want to be able to help this. You know, she, especially as the show aired and how it came out, you know, her own personal spiritual beliefs were very much on show. And uh, she, you know, broadly speaking, uh, is in line with something that, you know, people might recognize as new age spiritualism or new age spirituality. And this is something I have familiarity with. I mean, I was raised in, uh, in and around new age spiritualism. I've done research on the, the relationship between new age spirituality and the ancient past and the archaeological record. And, this is this is a needle that can be thread. Basically, I think that there are you know legitimate ways where we can talk about what does the archaeological record mean to different people. How do we have different stakeholders in archaeology, and you know where is the line of cultural appropriation and all of this? I think there's you know there are some lines and delicate balances that can be had here, uh, but unfortunately, you know I, I tried to reach out to the production company and there was no response and. I was, you know, ended up just being sort of uh, a rebel rouser on on Twitter, uh, and unfortunately, the way this show aired, it did ultimately, you know, I said they were on thin ice at times. I think they actually fell through the ice uh, more than a few times, uh, where they just blended and blurred together legitimate good archaeology. They had some great archaeologists on that show, but then they took that data and blended it in with conspiracy theories and giants uh, and uh, you know, all of this mysticism that ultimately, I think, leaves the audience confused to where they, they don't know where the information is coming from. They don't know what's reliable and not reliable in a show like this. And so you know, this is, I think this is why I'm on Twitter. This is why I write public yeah. science and you know, archaeology articles. We need better science communication and archaeology. And as long as we have shows like this, we're going to have audiences that are fundamentally confused about what archaeology is and isn't. To piggyback off that, with Graham Hancock-like books and with shows like that that come on History and Discovery and Travel Channel, where they say archaeologists don't want you to know or archaeologists aren't aware of, like it just creates a distrust in overall science then is what's something I've noticed. And I, that's dangerous to me, but. Absolutely. There is a, a very direct threat and, you know, and Hancock has been very vocal about this, that archaeologists, as far as he's concerned, are the enemy. Uh, you know, he's talked about archaeologists trying to cover up information or to selectively control what information gets out there because they don't want to admit to other bits of information. You know, Hancock very specifically develop, has developed a messaging strategy that basically says, don't trust them, trust me. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, we should get all information from him instead. And unfortunately, he gives you an extremely myopic view of archaeological data. He takes one or two things pulls them right out of context, offers no critical analysis of what they might represent, like the Saruti Mammoth site, and just shoves it down people's throat and says, you know, trust me and trust no one else in this whole process. And that is a very dangerous, toxic mix uh, for how we can communicate science. Yeah, and I could, you can almost see that, um, I feel like, in the political sphere as well. You could say that not to get too political, but you could say that Donald Trump is the same way as he wants everyone to get their, their information from him. And then he tells them what's real, what's false, what's stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's fundamentally like, like you're saying, it's dangerous to a society as a whole. 
Absolutely. And this is something that I argue very strongly in the classroom. You know, I, I teach a class on paranormal belief and I talk about the pseudo-archaeology stuff like in, in, in the classroom, in my paranormal class. The, the core of that class is that we're not reading one side. We're, we're reading, you know, everybody here. We're going to talk about what the believers say. We're going to read from them, their mouth. We're going to talk about what the skeptics say about paranormal claims. We're going to, you know, look at every single angle to this. And I think that's you know, fundamentally what we have to do in all aspects of our life these days. You know, I don't want Graham Hancock banned and, and never to be allowed to write again. For crying out, go read his books. But then please, after you read his books, go read an actual archaeology book. Now, this is, I think we said at the beginning here, like I got into this field because I read one of his books and I was fascinated. But when I learned about archaeology, this, you know, I think the most fundamental thing when when I read his book, Fingerprints of the Gods, he presented archaeologists as this myopic little world that, you know, wouldn't couldn't see past their noses and that they were all stubborn and and just narrow-minded and as soon as i met actual archaeologists that perspective just just faded I and mean, he he absolutely has no real relationship with that real archaeologists I and mean, archaeologists as a community are fundamentally in, you know, engrossed with the idea of new data and new interpretations and how we can better understand the world. We don't rule anything out categorically until we look at it. And it's fundamentally, he presents a false uh, perspective of the field. And so that's where it's like, don't trust him. Don't trust me. Read us both and, and look at the data and, and think about it and carry it out. Jesus. I don't, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's, I think that's, that was so articulate and so, so well-spoken. Like I'm, I'm thinking of, of poster quotes right now. <laughs> so you know, it's, I, I think in, in tweets now, I believe. So <laughs> <laughs> what is it? A hundred, is it 240 characters or hundred? I, I think it's up to 240. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. Yeah, this has been amazing. I appreciate it. I greatly appreciate you guys. It's really phenomenal to see uh, Carlton going on. Like having seen you grow up and, and move through this field is fabulous. And so I'm really happy to be a part of this. And I'm really glad you guys are doing this. We need more archaeology being talked about in the public sphere, which fundamentally do. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. And now I know uh, I just definitely want to say thank you. Ever since I graduated, I've seen you every year either at essays and then when I go back, to, I go to Radford way too frequently and I always make sure to, to say hello. So it's, so no, this has been great. And uh, would you like to tell our, our listeners all your social media handles that they could uh, follow you and find you at? Absolutely. I've, I've tried to corner the market on DSA archaeology. So uh, <laughs> I'm on Twitter as DSA archaeology. I'm on Facebook as DSA archaeology. And I've even got an Instagram, although I'm not sort of super active there. But uh, you can find me on all of the, the social media platforms. And then uh, if, um, I have a, a author's page on Forbes under David Anderson at Forbes, you know, where I, I'm uh, publishing as much as I can. It's been a, you know, a little overwhelming with the classes of late, but I will have new articles on Forbes sometimes here too, soon, and you can see all the back catalog. So yeah, you can find me all over the internet these days. Fantastic. And I guess our last question that we ask every guest, uh, as this is a Life in Ruins podcast, if you could choose to do it again, would you live a life in ruins? Uh, forever and always, I will, my life will be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer we've had. <laughs> Perfect. 
Well, all right, everyone. We just interviewed Dr. David S. Anderson, an assistant professor at Radford University. And uh, with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey guys, what's up? Why did a Mayan man build a colossal structure that aligns perfectly with equinoxes and cardinal directions, but was so far away from anything else? Dr. Anderson, do you think you have the answer to this one? I I think because he could do it. (laughs) Well, he felt alienated in his own community (laughs) and wanted to add some extraterrestrial lands to what he owned. (laughs) Oh, oh God. uh, Perfect. Thank you, Connor. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. State is big, bands are small, tribes are weak and states are strong. Bands go hunt, some tribes farm, and the state will take your food. Pre-show up the currency, and sometimes slavery, but there's one form that no one knows. What is a chiefdom? Service says it's redistribution. Rent through as accumulation. Pocketbook says it's all irrelevant. What is a chiefdom? Monuments and stratified. More goods paid when people die. Chiefs on mounts placed way up high. What is a chiefdom? Is it network? We don't know. Is it corporate? We don't know. How many people? We don't know. What is a chiefdom? Bureau trades with Mississippians. Rapping Nui built colossal heads. Kusa wasn't really all that big. What is a chiefdom? Building mounds, trade networks, run by chiefs and their families. Growing crops in the fields. Surplus feed trash specialists. Sometimes warfare will threaten you. So you build a palisade. But if you meet a weaker tribe, will you take their town by force? Will they be a tribute? What is a chiefdom? The Celts might have had some states. Hawaii had feather caves. Olmec traded lots of jade. What is a chiefdom? Is it simple complex? Spanish went on lots of treks. The Americas got wrecked. What is a chiefdom? Social hierarchy. People now are less free. Klingon had moieties. 
What is a chief dumb? Cahokia Laventa What is a chief dumb? So do we really know What a chief dumb is? Is it really a thing? Can archaeology Help us to see what we want to know is a mystery Theory is hard Post-processual say We're too evolutionary Are they too hard? Cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-